Well, good morning. Let's get our Bibles out and go to Mark chapter 12. I hope you do bring your Bible to church. If not, we have Bibles available for you, and you can pick one up when you come into the church. You can even go back there now and get one. I don't mind at all. We'll read the first scripture together. The rest will be on the screen later. Now, we're in the political season. Here we go. And there's lots of gotcha questions. Have you noticed that? The media loves to play the gotcha questions. I used to be a little more critical of politicians' inability to answer those questions articulately until uh, I had a friend of mine who kind of played a role-play game with me and asked me some public policy questions just when I was flat-footed, and I did horrible. So it's not that easy uh, to answer these gotcha questions, and the Pharisees and Sadducees definitely did that with Jesus. They were trying to trick Jesus. They used flattery to try to soften him up, and then they would come and they would uh, ask him different types of questions that would try to catch him in blasphemy or to get him in disfavor with the people. Today's message is called Living in Caesar's world. And we see here in the text how Jesus is immediately questioned in order to be tricked. Let's go to verse 13 of Mark 12. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to to him to trap him by what he said. And when they came, they said to him, teacher, we know you are truthful and defer to no one for you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 15. Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius, which by the way was their currency of the day. Bring me a denarius or we would say a dollar to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said, verse 17. And then Jesus told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Verse 17 is our key scripture because it shows the wisdom of Jesus who didn't get tricked by a gotcha question like, a mere human typically is, but instead masterfully answered this question in such a way to extend his work and to bring us wisdom today. And the application of this will help us to learn how to live in Caesar's world or in the democratic capitalistic world we live in or for our brothers and sisters in China, the communist world, whatever socio-political atmosphere we're in, in this very simple answer to a question. We get a depth of wisdom by which we can live. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you haven't left us as orphans. You're our father. You're our guide. Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. Thank you for the revelation of the scripture today that's going to bring us a life. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you that the Bible is powerful. I thank you that the Bible is effective. Lord, we honor you by honoring your word, which is our standard. It's our uh, centerpiece, Lord. It's, it's um, the guide by which we live. And so, Lord, as we are journeying through the book of Mark, Lord, you've given us a scripture today uh, for the benefit of your church to make us strong and healthy and everything you want us to be. So, God, we uh, give this message to you and every single thing you want to do in this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
about two hours from Miami, a two-hour flight, is a completely different world, a world that's so different from any place you've ever been unless you've gone to Haiti yourself. Haiti is a maddening place, a place with um, just ineffective leadership and generations of poverty. It's very, very, um, very, very difficult for Americans to relate to it. I went with a team from the city of Hendersonville, a multi-church effort to the country of Haiti. And most of our team were doctors and dentists and medical professionals. So I was kind of the odd guy out on this team. And really not that many people uh, knew I was a pastor at the beginning of the trip. My job was to go to these kind of makeshift clinics. And, and when I say they're makeshift, I'm, I'm, we, we went to just the slums or uh, the shanty towns of Haiti and uh, just set up a couple of tables. Everything in the clinic, we just carried in with our bags. And we set up these clinics. And the important work were with the dental team. That's the team I worked with. And my job was simply to take orders. I would, I would go get the tools. And by the end of the week, I learned what di- different dentistry tools were. Uh, and then I would keep the dentist hydrated. I would bring them water. Uh, it was so hot there. I would take a wet cloths and wring them out on their necks. And I just did those kind of really practical anonymous work. And it was a blessing to do that. It was a blessing to serve those people. But when we were in the middle of those very, very um, hot, humid, dirty, difficult circumstances, and, and we were trying to provide dental care to, to people in, in really tough socio, uh, socioeconomic situations, um, the fact that I was the senior pastor of a church made no difference in that moment. Uh, My role as a husband, my role as a father was not preeminent. Uh, My education, my leadership, my financial net worth, none of those things really mattered right there in the midst of that moment because we were right there trying to accomplish a task, trying to get things done. It was just about get the right tool, get the bottle of water, uh, let's make sure we're doing this task right. But here's the interesting thing. Even though I was, I guess, the orderly, I was the fetch him guy, whatever I was, even though that was my role and that's really all anyone cared about in that moment, it didn't change the fact that I still am or still was at that moment a pastor. I still was a husband. I still was a father. I still was all the different roles that God had given me. It didn't really change. Even though those roles weren't preeminent and weren't known and and weren't even celebrated or weren't even recognized. They still existed. It was like this dualistic world we're living in. Here's the first observation that I want you to understand from the scripture today. We're called to live in a dualistic world. Write that down if you're taking notes. I want you to know scripture is really clear about this. We live in a dualistic world. The, The same way that here I was living in two different roles, that were not opposed to one another. It was not hypocrisy. It was not being fake. It was just just the fact that multiple roles were uh, occurring in my life as I was doing this task. So it is that when we go about the things that we do, our jobs, our school schedule, our hobbies, that we live in this dual world, that we are within culture, And I encourage you to be part of culture. I encourage you to be part of the community. I encourage you to volunteer and to be involved with your neighbors and to be involved with uh, the social need. 
and to be involved in just simply community events that make our society a more joyful and, and a more harmonious place to live. But while you're doing that, you have to understand that there are two types of worlds as God's people. This is a simple but important concept to understand because if you don't understand that two things are happening at the same time, then you'll not see the spiritual battle that underlies all of the natural things we do. While we are living our lives out, there are two worlds occurring simultaneously. That which what we can see and that which what we cannot see. And the apostle John makes this very clear in his writings as he emphasized certain things Jesus said. John chapter eight, verse 21. Then he being Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 23, now look, Jesus shows this really dualistic world, uh, this binary world that I want you to see. He said to them, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Okay, so we got this concept down pretty easily that Jesus is of another world. And those religious accusers were not of the world Jesus was from. So that's easy to understand. But what about us? Now, we're not going to look at Matthew 4 today, but that's talking about the temptation of Jesus when uh, we see there, as we do in many other scriptures, that Satan has a limited authority over the earth right now. And Jesus will have full authority in the already not yet kingdom of God. He reigns now, but he's not yet affirmed his rule. But let's go on and see more of what John said. John 15, and for the sake of time, let's just go to verse 18. John chapter 15, going to verse 18, he says this, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Going on, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. I want you to see here, this dualistic world is not just Jesus and everyone else. It's Jesus and his followers. It's Jesus and his people. It's Jesus and his believers. And I could spend two hours going after scripture and scripture and scripture over and over and over again that God is reminding his people, hey, you're, you're of a different world. You're of a different culture. You're of a different mindset. You're of a different perspective. You don't think like everyone else thinks. You don't process like everyone else processes. You don't have the same standards that everyone else has. One of the problems in, as a church in our ability to relate to culture, which is a good thing, and we want to relate to them. Jesus did that, did he not? And Jesus humbled himself. Jesus came and lived among us. The temptation is, as we begin to relate to culture, we forget that we're of a different world. We're of a different substance. We're a different people. We're a called out people. And our distinction comes from the choosing of God. Our distinction comes from the scripture. Our distinction comes from the standard of holiness that, that the Lord has given to us. We don't try to distinguish ourselves uh, through 
through, through things such as um, characteristics like some re- Christian groups have done in the past. Like we're going to dress totally different or live totally different or, or have a whole different uh, subculture of outward things. No, we do so with our character. We do so with our morality. We do so with our obedience. John chapter 17, this is um, the most famous prayer of Jesus. Let me, let me rephrase that. It's, it's the most insightful prayer of Jesus. Uh, the John chapter 17, we learn so much about Jesus's relationship with the Father and his relationship to us. And in verse 14, he says this, I have given them your word and the world hated them because they are not of the world. You, do you see this contrast here? As I am not of the world. I am not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. I want you to think about that scripture for a second. The, the, go back to that previous screen. This is Jesus giving us a model for this dualistic world. He's saying, I don't want you just to go out of the world. I don't think that we're called to be a separatist society. Some Christians have been, but you know, I don't really want to go get a piece of property and live with all you people. I'd rather see you, you know, a couple times a week and then just all go about our business. So we're not called to like separate right now. Uh, We're called to be of the world, but here's what Jesus is praying for us. And think about this. Jesus is praying that we would be protected. We would have this ability to live amongst culture, but not be impacted by culture in a negative way. It's a difficult thing to do. And that's why we need the help of the, the, the Lord. 15. I'm not, uh, verse 16, they are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they also may be sanctified by the truth. All right, you get that? We got two worlds. Y'all with me? You got that point? All right, I'm gonna move on. Now, one of the things every single person in here struggles with and I would be a hypocrite if I acted like I didn't struggle with this either, is obeying laws that we don't prefer. Obeying laws that we think are goofy or stupid or dumb or ineffective or irrelevant. Uh, that, that often manifests itself in our vehicles when we drive them. Or it manifests itself a lot of times in, in, in um, places that we go that they're not necessarily state law but, but they're the laws of the putt-putt golf place or laws of the sporting area or, or whatever the, the case may be, laws of private businesses. Now, I, I went to a, a really small college in Kansas City area. We had really, really limited parking, limited parking. You had to really fight for a parking place. And uh, I got tired of, you know, walking from my apartment around campus. And one day I saw a parking place that was open and I knew I wasn't supposed to park there, but I'm like, hey, who's it going to hurt? So I parked there. They're never going to find out. And sure enough, I had a ticket. Ticket. They ticketed me after I'd given thousands of dollars to this school, and they're ticketing me. So I look at the ticket, see the fine, and I, I put it in my, you know, my seat next to me. I'll, I'll deal with it later. Uh, the next day, I'm driving, and, and I saw that another parking lot that was exposed, and I got this bright idea. I just pulled my car in took the old ticket that had already been written and put it underneath my windshield. This is a children's pastor already, by the way. And I didn't like the law. 
and I found a way around it. And so I kept doing that through the rest of the semester. I just worked out good for me. Anywhere I wanted to park, I had, I had a parking pass, you know, that let me park wherever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to. And so one day I was checking the mail. This was right before email started being our means of communication. We used to use something called uh, the post office, the campus post office. And I check and I get this really cool letter. It says sign. That, and I thought, wow, grandma sent me some cookies or something really good. So I signed for this letter and I get it. And it was the campus police department. They had busted me with like $500 worth of fines. So anyway, I went and talked to the officer and we worked something out. And I was a leader on my campus and that really wasn't um, good and beneficial. But we do that, don't we? If we don't like the law, if we don't prefer it, we find ways around it. And I do that and God has really been causing me to think more about that of the, the um, call for Christians to be compliant, the, the call for Christians to resist that rebellious spirit within us that wants to say, I'm not gonna follow the rules. I think that rule's dumb. I think that rule's ineffective. Here's what we're called to, and here's your next blank. We're called to responsible citizenry. We have dual citizens. You know, we're citizens of America, but we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. Our highest citizenship is in heaven. But as believers, wherever we find ourselves and whatever situation we are, I know that the scripture teaches us we have responsibilities to obey the law. And I think that this sense of compliance and cooperation is uh, something that pleases the Lord. Now, I, I, I'm saying this, and I'm, I'm talking to you now pastorally, okay? I'm not like your boss trying to get you to do something, or I'm not like the president of a college trying to get everyone to follow the college rules, or I'm not the police chaplain representing the police department right now. So, so this is just totally, with no agenda, Let's look at what the scripture says about our responsibility. We have a couple of lengthy scriptures, our responsibility to be cooperative. Paul writes about this a couple of different times. Romans 13 verses one through seven is so clear. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist are instituted by God. Now, this is very difficult concept for us to understand in a republic, a democratic republic here, because we, we choose our representatives. We choose those who lead us, and then they choose the laws for us. And I thank God for that freedom. I thank God for those of you, your family members, who have sacrificed to give us that freedom. I don't take that for granted. But from a spiritual standpoint, it makes us overly critical of laws and rules and standards because we don't see them as gifts from God or opportunities from God. We, we see them as restrictions. Verse two, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. 
For the government is God's servant for your good. Uh Uh-oh, hold on a second. Now, this is the Bible, people. Okay, we, we live in a very angry culture right now. It's very in vogue to have this sense of rage towards the government. And there is nothing wrong with giving, making um, political judgments and saying, I don't believe this, I don't believe in that. But this rage we have, there's a great lack of empathy for the sacrifices and pressures our leaders have from local constables here to the police department, the fire department. Um, you know, we, we, we are, because of cable news, we're preoccupied with federal policy, but really local policy is, is what affects us uh, more directly. And there, there is just a lot of pressure upon our local politicians. Our, our, I shouldn't even use the word politicians, excuse me. Our local leaders, our elected officials, are assigned officials, and we should be empathetic and cooperative with them. Verse four, for the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on those who do wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes since the authorities are God's public service servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those who owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. So we have to apply this to our context today and say that those things that are established um, from the speed limits to tax policy uh, to the different things that affect our life, even the rules that, are, that our schools are in place. I, I know sometimes it's a hassle. I don't want to go sign in to go see my kid. I ought to be able to go see my kid. Why do they make me go sign in? And what I really I hate wearing the sticky badge, you know? Why do I have to wear a sticky badge? It's going to get gunk on my shirt and it's really done. I'm a taxpaying citizen of this county. Why are they going to make me do this? Just be compliant. These people are just trying to protect the kids. They're just trying to bring order. They're just, and it's just more Christ-like. It's just easier. It's just better. Peace just comes and we just do what we're supposed to do. I can just feel us bristling in our spirits, huh? This independent Americans of us are like, hey, I don't want anyone telling me what to do, especially the pastor. Titus 3.1. Paul tells Titus, a young pastor, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So I want to say this, as God's people, think in all areas, we need to step up our desire for compliance. Gail Boyd, our business administrator, she's real good at that. She's always, she's always telling me, Don't, hey, this is what we need to do. I'm like, really? Are you sure, Gail? We really need to do it this way? Yeah. I mean, even, even something as simple, and, and we don't always get this 100% right, but if you notice the last couple of weeks, we begin to uh, just put up uh, the publishing information for the songs we sing in here because you know that we pay a CCLI license for songs so that songwriters get their credit. 
so that their artistic um, expression is recognized. And we're supposed to display that after we sing songs in here. It's a way to honor people. And it's, it's just a way to be compliant, just to follow. Just, just, I mean, life just functions better when everyone does what they're supposed to do. It just does. Now, I, I want to tell you about an eight-year-old boy who this guy is compliant and obedient to his teachers, and he's obedient to his principles, principle, and he follows all the rules like he's supposed to. Here's the problem. This eight-year-old boy gets bullied at recess. Day after day after day, there's a bully who verbally harasses him, physically harasses him, taunts him, picks on him. So one day, this little boy, after many, many days, many, many weeks of being harassed, punches the bully and bloodies his nose. Guess what? The bullying stopped. But here's the problem. The principal, who recognizes the obedience of this kid and what a good kid is, is understands that there is a no-tolerance policy for physical violence in his school. And that's how, I mean, there is no exception whatsoever. If a kid strikes another kid, they have to be punished. So he calls this very obedient eight-year-old child into his office and finds out the circumstances and says, young man, you understand that there, there is no other option. I have to punish you. You understand that there is a no there is a, a, a no-tolerance policy for violence in our school. And the boy responds, yes, but my daddy said to not get bullied anymore. But my daddy said, even though there are good rules that are in the school that have to be enforced, My daddy said, don't get bullied anymore. My daddy said, don't get picked on anymore. Here's my third point today. We are called to obey God before we obey society. Even though I hope I painted a picture of why compliance and obedience and submission is important, there is a higher standard. And let me show you scriptural evidence of this. Acts chapter 5, verse 25. Someone came and reported to them, this was the religious leaders of the day that were enforcing Jewish law. Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the temple police and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. And after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? That's the name of Jesus, by the way. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Why? Because my daddy said... Because God's law is higher than man's law. 
And so we live in this world of tension. And in my estimation, I think Christians, we, can, we should be a lot more compliant in the little things. We have this sense of entitlement and this sense of rebellion and this sense of haughtiness to the small law, the traffic laws, the school policy, the school policies, um, the things that happen in our education system, the things that happen in, in uh, taxes and local matters. And all, we're really rebellious and compliant in that. Uh, but on the larger issues, uh, so, sometimes... We, we are so scared that we don't stand up for what we're supposed to. The, the church, church is so scared of the eternal revenue service. We may lose our tax exempt status. First of all, statistically, that has only happened a few times ever in the history of the eternal, internal revenue service. And every time it's happened, they have provided a pathway uh, for, for um, nonprofits or churches to uh, get their tax status back. So there, there's this incredible ir, irrational fear. It's an irrational fear that if we stand up for uh, what we believe the word of God says, that, that, that um, we're going to lose some kind of financial advantage. And while we may need to be aware of trends, we don't need to walk in fear. So we, we need to be more compliant about the little things and less fearful about the things that matter. Well, what are those things? Those things have to flow out of the convictions of your heart based off the Bible and based off the spiritual community you're part of and based off the Holy Spirit. And there should be things that you're willing to lose money and lose time over and, and lose social status over, maybe lose a job over. There should be those things. What are those things? I don't know for you, but I know them for me. And, and as a church community, I think we would know those things when those things emerged. So it is that we should not be looking to be disruptive. We should be looking to be peaceful. We should be looking to be cooperative. We should be looking to be compliant. But we should live by the leadership of the church community, of the scripture, of the Holy Spirit to be who God wants us to be. The issue in this scripture today, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's, is not public policy, it's an issue of the heart. That's the brilliance of what Jesus talked about. You see, the the Pharisees wanted to suck Jesus into a political debate. How many know that's a trap for us also? You're going to have a chance to discuss this sermon at 242 tonight. And, you know, it's going to be a great test of civility and a great test of if, God, if we're going to fall into the trap of Satan uh, and, and, and um, focus on things we shouldn't focus on. Or are we going to center on the heart issue? That's what Jesus did. And he said this, this brilliant line, give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give your taxes to Washington. Uh, give your compliance to the policemen. Uh, give your cooperation with the school district. G give all of that what you're supposed to give. But give to God what is God's. And that's your heart. That's, that's your, uh, the essence of who you are. 
give to God that stuff. And, and those things seem to correspond to one another. I've known a few guys over the years who have put either a motorcycle or a sports car up for sale, but they didn't really try hard to sell these items. They, they priced the motorcycle too high. They didn't advertise it. They may not have shown up for certain appointments to sell. They, oh, oh, yeah, I was supposed to meet someone to show them my bike, but yeah, I'm not going to be able to get to that. And they just kept putting off the sale. Why? I mean, they wanted the sale, right? Or at least their spouse wanted the sale, right? But why was it that, that they didn't really try real hard? Because they loved the motorcycle too much. Didn't matter if they intellectually thought, oh yeah, I need to get rid of this thing. It's costing too much. It's taking up too much of my time. We need the cash. Or, you know, my wife doesn't prefer me riding right now. Oh yeah, yeah I'm going to put it up for sale. I'm going to open my garage and just wait for the Holy Spirit to bring a buyer by. No, they, they loved the bike too much. Because they loved the bike too much, they couldn't get rid of it love the sports car too much. Listen, th- this is the issue here, what we're talking about today. We are, co- we are called, here's your last point, my last point, to maintain detached hearts from the world. We're called to maintain detached hearts for the world. Man, that's really hard to do when we're prosperous people like we are. I know many of you are paycheck to paycheck, or I, I'm not insensitive to the fact that money can be tight. But in perspective to the world, most of us are going to know where to eat in the next week. And most of us have shelter. Most of us have access to transportation. We're among the elite who have ever lived in the world. We have disposable time. We travel. We're mobile. We're able to take vacations, weekend trips. We're able to go places. And it's really, really hard not to love the world when you have access to the best things in the world. And I'm the leader in this. I'm saying this to me too. I've got to, thanks be to God, I have a good life right now. I have my material needs taken care of. I love where I live. I love what I do. I I love the joy of life and I find no shame in the joy of the Lord. I find no shame in enjoying life. But this dualistic world we talked about, we have to be so careful that our hearts don't become attached to this world too much. Remember John, the apostle John, who gave us all of those sayings of Jesus in the first part of the sermon. When he wrote his book to the church some years later, he said this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. In our prayer that we prayed together in worship, we prayed, Lord, by your gospel, help us to not be lured by the world. And that's what we do. Our hearts are just kind of pulled. We kind of drift closer to this culture 
and the entertainment that's here and the good part of this life. And it's okay to enjoy that as long as our hearts are not detached from heaven. Our hearts need to be with him. Our hearts need to be with the Lord. So how do we do that? I mean, I guess I could answer this question a dozen in different ways, dozens, dozens of different ways. But I know no better way than to refocus over and over and over again on Jesus. Refocus on the gospel message. Listen, we don't need to focus on the prayer of Jabez. We don't need to focus on the 40 days of this. We don't need to focus on the latest trend or the books that are in the top 10 sellers. Jesus, well, we do focus on him. I was gonna say Jesus calling, it's a good book. We need to focus on, that was, I was about to mess up my point. We need to focus on the gospel. That's it. Focus on the centrality of the cross and the resurrection. There is nothing as powerful as the cross and that message when it resonates in our heart. It gives us passion for the things we need to have passion for. It keeps us focused on what we need to focus on. And so it is, we go back every, every time we gather, we go back to Jesus, to the center of our faith. And we say, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, help me uh, to love you more than this world. Help me to love you more than this culture. Help my heart not to become attached to all these things you've blessed me with, but keep my heart attached to you and who you are.